You're listening to Sermons by the Park from Union Congregational Church in East Walpole, Massachusetts. I'm Pastor Aaron Shepard, and on behalf of the members of our church, let me just say what a blessing it is to have you listen to the message we're sharing and to become a part of what God is up to over here in our little corner of creation. To learn more about Union, you can visit our website, churchbythepark.org. Friends, we live in trying times. There's no doubt about it. There's global conflicts and catastrophes, political and economic uncertainty, cultural changes, generational shifts, and oh yeah, all of the usual trials and triumphs of just being human. Even if you look around and think to yourself, I don't know, pastor, life seems pretty good to me. Don't worry, we all have our trying times. In the church, we set aside 40 days leading up to Holy Week and the celebration of Easter as a time of trial, a time of testing what God can do and what we can do with God. The prophet Malachi wrote, Put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts. See if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you an overflowing blessing. Friends, I pray that you may experience that overflowing flowing blessing, even in trying times. Now here's this week's message. The first scripture reading this morning is from Romans chapter 6, verses 3 through 10. Do you not know that all of us have been baptized into Christ? Jesus, into Christ Jesus, were baptized and into his death. Therefore, we have not buried with him by baptism into death, so that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in the newness of life. For if we have been united with him in death like his, we will certainly be united with him in the resurrection like his. We know that our, self, our old self was crucified with him so that the body of sin may be destroyed and we might no longer be enslaved. For whosoever died is freed from sin. But if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. The death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. May God add a blessing to the reading of this word. Our second scripture reading this morning comes to us from the book of the prophet Ezekiel in the 37th chapter, verses 1 through 14. I'm going to do something a little different today. I'm just going to read a little bit from the beginning and a little bit from the end. And then I'll talk for a while and then I'll read you what's in the middle. Okay? I promise. It'll, it'll all come together. It'll all come together. The hand of the Lord came upon me, and he brought me out by the Spirit of the Lord, and he set me down in the middle of a valley, and it was full of bones. He led me all around them, and they were, there were very, very many bones lying in the valley, and they were very, very dry. He said to me, Mortal, these bones are the whole house of Israel. They say, our bones are dried up and our hope is lost. We are cut off completely. Therefore prophesy. 
Say to them, Thus says the Lord God, I am going to open your graves, O my people, and I will bring you back to the land of Israel. And you shall know that I am the Lord when I open your graves and bring you up from your graves, O my people. I will put my spirit within you, and you shall live. And I will place you on your own soil, and then you shall know that I, the Lord, have spoken and will act, says the Lord. Let us pray together. Come, breath of God. Come and put your spirit within us here today. Baptize us in the waters of your presence. Free us to live more fully and to love more like Christ. Now may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable, even pleasing to you, O God, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. My friend and colleague uh, from UMass Lowell, Dr. John Kegg, recently delivered the prestigious William James Lecture at the Harvard Divinity School. And his topic for the lecture, fittingly, was William James and the Sick Soul. Now, for those who don't know, William James was a professor of philosophy and psychology at Harvard University in the latter part of the 19th century. He is a towering figure in the history uh, and the development of both philosophy and psychology as academic disciplines here in the United States. Uh, His textbook on psychology was the standard textbook uh, for 50 years after his death, and many of the concepts he invented, like the stream of consciousness, are still in wide circulation today. Uh, James is also known as the founder of a philosophical school, one of the founders of a philosophical school called Pragmatism, and, uh, and one of his major works is called The Varieties of Religious Experience, and that, that work contains a description of the sick soul that was the topic of Dr. Kegg's talk. To understand what James meant by the sick soul, Kegg first explained how James understood the human condition. According to William James, every moment of our lives is fundamentally framed by possibility. Possibilities for action provide context to our present moment and also shape our future. There are possibilities everywhere, always, and at all times. And for most people, this is a great gift. We see the world around us as full of possibilities, and we, we have the privilege and the opportunity to choose, choose how to live our lives. But the, for the sick soul, James says, the sick soul experiences the possibilities of life as, for lack of a better term, evil. Either the sick soul believes that their life is simply fated and destined to be what it is, meaning that possibilities are are not really possibilities, or the sick soul experiences their life's possibilities as curdled or flat, slow or dead. Those are James' words. We might refer to such people who, who experience life this way as pessimists because they see the whole world through a darkened lens. But pessimism is simply a habit of thought. It's a way of thinking about things. But the sick soul is something 
different. It's something more than that. Their whole being is captured by this disposition to see and experience the world around them as devoid of the possibility of of a good life. And when you try to cheer this person up with a good meal or a good laugh, it just doesn't, doesn't get through to them. For these individuals, James says, riches take wing, fame is a breath, and love is a cheat. In his lecture, Keg pointed out that James realized how off-putting it is to describe this condition, to describe this way of being. So much so that when James wrote about the sick soul and the varieties of religious experience, he wrote a warning saying that painful indeed it will be to listen to. And there is almost an indecency in handling these cases in public. Yet they lie right in the middle of our path if we are to touch the psychology of religion at all seriously. We must be willing to forget all conventionalities and dive below the line of a smooth conversational surface. Under the surface, Keg goes on to say in his lecture, deep down, dark, deep. Even the Stoic's hope of self-possession lapses. Any optimist down there has to close their mouth. At the pool where I swim laps, there, one of the rules there is that there is uh, no extended underwater swimming or breath holding. This rule is in theory for our safety and also, I think, for the benefit of the lifeguards. But the thing about swimming laps is that unless you actually spend some time under the water, either during your term Or if you're simply swimming with your face beneath the surface of the water, you are going to be holding your breath. It's really hard to swim laps without extended underwater breath holding. If James was right, and life is really like swimming in a sea of possibilities, the sick soul is the one who engages in extended underwater swimming. Holding their breath, the sick soul finds themselves submerged into the world and the experience of its limits, of its sins, of its evils, that the poor will always be with us, that there will be no such thing as a war that ends war, that the body dies and the soul perhaps dies with it, that starvation and disease take the lives not just of the wicked, but of the innocent, of children, These are the curdled, deadened possibilities of life that the sick soul not only sees, but absorbs and carries around in their being. No wonder the lifeguards don't want us to spend too long underwater. It gets pretty dark down there pretty fast. Of course, the irony, and part of the reason James says we can't avoid talking about the sick soul, is that those folks do not really misperceive the human condition. In that sense, they are not sick at all. They are sickened, rather, by the realities of life's trials and tribulations. And there is perhaps something quite healthy about that response to evil. That is the response that we hear in the scripture this morning from Ezekiel. That is the response that the living God hears and understands and responds to. The Lord says to the prophet, Mortal, these bones, 
that you see here. These are the whole house of Israel. And what they have said is this. Our bones are dried up. Our hope is lost. We are cut off completely. In other words, we've run out of good options. Our possibilities for life have curdled. Our souls are sick. Life is not worth living. Now this vision of the prophet Ezekiel came after the Babylonian emperor Nebuchadnezzar had laid waste to Jerusalem and took many of its people away into captivity in Babylon. This valley could have been a place where the kingdom's defenders had had put up a fight and been slain in battle and left there for the birds and the beasts to feast upon. Or this valley could be the place where those who were left behind in Jerusalem went went after they had starved since the Babylonians plundered their crops and destroyed their fields. Either way, the historical context indicates that this prophet's vision of a valley of dry bones is not something imaginary, something they made up. This is a reflection of a real collective trauma that the people of Israel have experienced. And now the prophet is there, standing, staring at this open grave where there is no life left. The bones are very dry. This is not the sort of place one would go for a nice visit. It was the spirit that drove Ezekiel out there, picked him up, he says, picked him up and set him down. It drove him out into this valley just as Jesus was driven out into the wilderness for 40 days. In this, the prophet is meeting the people of Israel where they are in that moment, soul-sick and world-weary. That is where the prophet must go. The prophet must go to where the people are. And that is where the followers of Christ must go. Not to attempt to convince those who are sick or struggling or dying or even dead that they just need to snap out of it or get over it, but instead to go and meet them in the valley, in that furrow in the ground, down deep and dark. For down there we can share their burdens. You see, as we heard from Paul's letter to the Romans, the Christian faith is not about the denial of death, of evil. In fact, it is just the opposite. One cannot believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ unless they believe that death is not only a possibility, but a reality that we all will face, that we all must face. And it is a fearsome and sickening possibility. It takes our breath away, like slipping beneath the surface of a pool. That's what grief can feel like, facing death, whether that be the grief of a loved one, of a newborn child, or or a beloved grandmother. These are not moments that we avoid as people of faith, Those are the wilderness where the wildness of the spirit might just break through. I grew up just up the street from the Masonic Cemetery in Eugene, Oregon. It's one of the oldest cemeteries in the city. It sits on the side of a fairly steep hill 
And it's thickly wooded with tall Douglas firs and, and low-lying ferns, and there are vines that are always threatening to encroach upon the bark chip paths and the gravestones there. The cemetery was a useful cut-through for me on the way to my middle school and then my high school and eventually to the university as well. It seemed to just be between everywhere I needed to go. So I spent many, many hours walking in that place, that evergreen place where the dead rested. And I think it, that is the image that I begin to think about when I think about life and death, growth and decay, not, not cleanly separated from one another, but commingled in this mysterious, complex way. And it can be hard for us to sort that out, but of course for God, whose experience is infinitely richer than ours, perhaps it all makes some sense. Scripture says, the Lord set me down in the valley. He led me all around them, and there were very many bones lying in the valley, and they were very dry. But then it goes on and it says this. The Lord said to me, mortal, can these bones live? I answered, O Lord God, you know. Then he said to me, prophesy to the bones. Say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, I will cause breath to enter you and you shall live. I will lay sinew upon you and will cause flesh to come upon you and cover you with skin and put breath in you and you shall live and you shall know that I am the Lord. It seems like an absurd question, doesn't it? Can these bones live? On a hot and humid evening in 1895, William James delivered a lecture on the Harvard campus that uh, Keg considers to be James' most important lecture, and I won't disagree with him, at least not today. The lecture is called, Is Life Worth Living? Almost as absurd a question. Can these bones live? Is life worth living? See, James had been invited there that night by the Cambridge YMCA, the Young Men's Christian Association, to address a recent spate of suicides in the town of Cambridge. There had been nine over the previous year. And the organizers hoped, according to Keg in his lecture, that the venerable Professor James, the founder of pragmatism, this, this school of thought of positivity and, and, and strenuous living, they thought that James would come and give these young Christian men some reassurance and some sense of security that indeed, of course, life is worth living. But again, James, James was the philosopher who confronted the sick soul. He, he understood, even related to this malady. And so he did not deliver exactly the talk, I think, that the organizers may have hoped. In fact, he seems to have included a subtle jab at them when he said, Ordinary Christians, like these folks over here, reasoning with would-be suicides, have little to offer them beyond the usual thou shalt not. God alone is master of life and death, they say, and it is a blasphemous act to anticipate his absolving hand. But, James said, can we find nothing richer and more positive than a thou shalt not? 
no reflections to urge, whereby the suicide may actually see for themselves in all sad seriousness, feel that in spite of adverse appearances, even for him, life is still worth living. Well, that is the goal James sets out for in his lecture. Of course, James was not himself a Christian, not in any sort of orthodox sense. But he did have very little patience for those who refused to acknowledge how difficult life can be. But James also knew that to only treat life's possibilities as evil is not healthy. It's sick. So James answered the question of his lecture not with a straightforward yes, but also not with a no, a pessimistic no, but instead with an honest maybe. He said, maybe life is worth living. It depends. It depends upon you to make it so. And in some ways, that seems to be something like the answer Ezekiel found in this vision, because God, God only knows if these bones can live. Maybe they can, maybe they can't. And of course, God alone has the power to put life back into them, but God tells Ezekiel he must prophesy to the bones. God may be able to do it, but God chooses not to act alone. God chooses Ezekiel to make these bones live. And so the passage continues, I prophesied as I had been commanded. And as I prophesied, suddenly there was a noise, a rattling, and the bones came together, bone to its bone. I looked, and there were sinews on them, and flesh had come upon them, and the skin had covered them, but there was still no breath in them. And the Lord God said to me, prophesy to the breath, prophesy, mortal, and say to the breath, thus says the Lord, Come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe upon these slain, that they may live. And so I prophesied as he commanded me, and the breath came into them, and they lived and stood on their feet, a vast multitude. What made these dead things come alive? It wasn't just something strenuous in themselves. It wasn't even simply the effort of the prophet. What made them come alive was the truth. The truth that it is not in our power alone to make life worth living. That fundamentally what we require is an impossible possibility. That poverty, starvation, devastation, disease, racism, evil, sin, even death itself, that all of these things may be fully real, but that their reality may not be the sum total of our living, nor may they have the last word. For friends, it is God who has the last word. God has the last word in the valley of the dry bones and in the hospital room and on the Harvard campus and here in East Walpole and in Syria and Ukraine, in your life, in my life, in our life, here together. God has the last word because God was made flesh and dwelt among us. Because God came to baptize us into God's own death so that just as Christ lives in God, so may we be alive in Christ. 
So if today, if today you have an unequivocal yes to that question, is life worth living, God bless you. What a gift that is. But if, if you identify with that feeling of soul sickness, that life's possibilities have curdled for you, that's okay too. That is human, that is normal. And I'm not here to tell you that that struggle is not real, that those worries are illusions, or that life uh, and death are not fearful and often tragic. Far from that. All of that can be true. But as as a follower of Christ, I trust that that truth is, that truth is not all there is, that there is a greater and deeper truth. For when we are alone, Scripture teaches us that God draws us together. That when we feel vulnerable, God clothes us with strength. When we are hopeless, when we are breathless, God puts the Spirit within us so we can take another breath and another step, and maybe find that abundant life that lives deep down beneath even the darkness of death. One of my favorite poets, Gerard Manley Hopkins, says it better than anyone, I think, in his poem, God's Grandeur, which I will conclude with here today. The world is charged with the grandeur of God. It will flame out like shining from shook Foil, it gathers to a greatness like the ooze of oil crushed. Why do men then now not wreck his rod? Generations have trod and have trod, have trod, and all is seared with trade, bleared, smeared with toil, and wears man's smudge and shares man's smell. The soil is bare now, nor can foot feel being shod. And for all this, nature is never spent. There lives the dearest freshness, deep down things. And though the last lights off the black west went, oh, morning at the brown brink eastward springs, because the Holy Ghost over the bent world broods with warm breast and with ah, bright wings. Thank you for listening. I hope this week's message encouraged you, maybe challenged you, but connected with you somehow. If you'd like to connect with us, you can reach out on Facebook or Instagram at Church by the Park. The theme music you hear is Just Do It by RKVC. Until next time, may the grace and peace of Christ be with you.